temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalist Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you might get canceled. Hi, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from perfection to live bolder, braver, and happier lives. Today, we're talking about the bravery to demand change, push for more, and stand in your power. For that conversation, I've invited Dr. C. Nicole Mason. She's the president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. IWPR is a leading think tank that uses research to help grow women's power and influence, close inequality gaps, and improve the economic well-being of families. Dr. Mason has been a leading voice, speaking up about the crisis women are facing in the workplace as a result of the pandemic. She coined the crisis a she session because of the way women's jobs have been decimated. We had an important conversation about the significant setbacks women are facing, the potential of solutions like the Marshall Plan for Moms, and why now is a moment to be bold and ask for more. I hope you enjoyed today's show. All right, Dr. Mason, I am so excited to have you on the show. I have been following your work, especially everything you're talking about, the crisis with women and what we're facing when it comes to the workforce during COVID. And I am very concerned about what's happening. And you've been a, a leading voice in raising the alarm bells. Can you let our listeners know why this is such a critical issue and just paint a picture for us of, about what's happening? First of all, I want to say that I think that uh, this is a really historic moment, especially for women. When we think about you know, the Great Depression and even the recession, and now we haven't had a recession or an economic downturn that has impacted women in this way, but also hasn't upended many of our systems, structures, and institutions, and forced us into this really existential crisis that has us thinking like, is this normal or what is normal or what should we be doing? And so in that way, even though it's created all this turmoil and angst and change and you know hardship, it really is an opportunity for us to think about like, if this wasn't working and everything fell apart, like what can we create? And so um, for me, I find this moment energizing. I find it filled with opportunity. And I'm really excited to, you know, do this work, you know, like to be doing this work in this moment feels um, right. So did you know COVID-19 happens, right? We are over 51% of the labor market participation. And then everything essentially goes down the tubes. Like, when did you see this happening? 
And was there a piece of data or research or something that you were like, oh, no, right? This is a problem. It was actually in January 2020 when we did get those numbers that said like women were over 50% of the workforce. And I remember thinking like, we should be celebrating, but underneath the numbers, it's a different story. Like women are still economically vulnerable. They're still struggling. The numbers are not telling the truth about women's lives. And what the pandemic did was to bring those lives into focus and everything unraveled. Everyone's calling it this recession, this she session, um, because many women are in industries like retail, healthcare, education that have not been pandemic proof. Is that something that you were looking at in January of 2020? So in January 2020, the conversation went like this. You know, women are doing so great. They're over mm-hmm. 50% of the workforce. And guess what? The economy is booming. You know, the stock market is up. People are doing really well. Unemployment is low. We should be celebrating. But again, when we put that reality in conversations with women's lives, we knew or I knew that that wasn't the case. And so when the pandemic happened and we saw the enormous job loss by women, what that said to me was that the jobs that women have are less secure, the wages are lower, and women don't have benefits or like paid sick leave. All the things that we find out or we've known all along that matter that many working women didn't have. And earnings were less than $40,000 a year, hardly enough to you know, sustain a family. But in times like this becomes you know, really problematic because it, women had no savings. And so I started a few months in after the first jobs report, I started calling it a she session. And I just kept calling it that. And then when I was talking to the New York Times, and I was like, I think we should just call it what it is. And I really do think that it's really important to name this for all of us to be talking and articulating and framing out what this is, because it helps to shape this larger public narrative, and also where we look for solutions and strategies. I love that you say that because I've been talking about needing a Marshall Plan for moms, and I've gotten some pushback in like, well, why moms? What about dads, right? They're mm-hmm. suffering too. What about men? Or for some feminists saying, well, that's setting us back, right? If we talk about this in terms of it affecting women or caregiving in terms of women, then you know we just encourage men to not do that. What do you think about that? What I think this moment is about, it's about innovation. It's about big, bold ideas. And when I think about the Marshall Plan, it's really about upending existing ways of thinking about these issues and problems and saying, proposing something completely new, different, and a way of thinking about an issue. And also bringing into focus, because I think underneath it is this question about like, why is this the case? Like, why is this happening? Mm. And so I think it opens up the conversation and it, again, is brilliant because it allows us to engage in ideas in a way that we we haven't been engaging. So the bottom line is that like none of these issues are new, right? So none of these problems are new. We can sort of talk about them and dissect them and describe them. But the truth of the matter is, is that even though we've had all these strategies and solutions, none of them have really worked. <laughs> so at this point, it's really time to sort of like maybe set some of these frameworks aside and ways of doing things and say, perhaps we need to start all over. Mm. And so when I think about the Marshall Plan and, you know, other, you know, big ideas, 
it's about that. And we need innovation in this space. We need new thinking. And actually, I think that's pretty threatening to a lot, you know, even to progressives. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's funny because when we were saying mothers need basic income, people thought we were crazy, right? Like, what do you mean? And it seems as though cash payments are becoming more normalized and that's great, but it's obviously just one part of it. Why do you think, why do you think that we have treated America's mothers like our country's social safety net? Why is there resistance towards passing paid leave and affordable daycare? You know what it is? It's patriarchy. I mean, <laughs> that's really the bottom line. It's sexism and patriarchy. I can try to sugarcoat it, but <laughs> the bottom line, it's like just when you strip everything away, it's really about, you know, patriarchy and sexism, even like w- w- the same thing with race. Like when you strip away, when you say, well, what is this really about? Why haven't we made progress in all of these areas? And when you strip it away, it just really gets down to racism. Yeah. People are racist. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think the same thing, like, for example, the example that I always give, I say, well, you know, the thing about it is, is that for a long time, women have made up, you know, between 49 to 51% of the workforce. But nothing about the way we work, the way we think about work, workplaces have adapted to women. Mm. Right. So women are supposed to enter the workforce encumbered and act like men Mm. in the workforce. Like they don't have kids. They can work nine to five, I mean nine to 12 or like around the clock. And I don't know if you remember all those conversations about like what to do with millennials Mm -hmm. in the workplace. Mm -hmm. They were coming. We have to adjust the workplace. Millennials like beanbags and open floor plans. So let's, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, create a whole campus. They got cafeterias. They got all this stuff. And you know, the workplace shifted for these workers, but that never happened for women. We never said, what do women need to, you know, advance in their careers, have career mobility? That never happened. But the truth of the matter is, is that the workforce looks different. You know, women are CEOs, but we haven't, nothing has changed about how we've organized our work lives. Uh, You're blowing my mind. I mean, this is exactly what we need to be pushing for right now, right? Like a bunch of moms are coming back, right? We're going to come back. You've seen our kids. We're not hiding them from you. You know what we need. Yeah, like what are our beanbags and popcorn? Like what is that for us? And I think the thing is, is like part of it's like how do we get mothers to feel like we have a right to ask? Because I also feel like society has conditioned us so much to just – Like, we can't have nice things. We just have to be martyrs, right? I think you're right. And I think what this pandemic has shown us is it's not just me. I'm not the only one struggling with this. Like, you have corporate moms who are like, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to figure this out. And then you have, like, frontline moms who are like, I can't figure this out. And so we're like, okay, this is a structural problem. This is not an individual problem that I should be solving. Yeah. Um, And I think that is the difference in this moment. And I'm like, and actually... Well, I, I can only speak for myself. <laughs> so I'm a little, I think we're like pretty fed up and like, okay, no more. I keep telling people, I said, let me tell you something. If childcare was on the ballot in 2020, it would have passed unanimously <laughs> because everybody mm-hmm. was having their own challenges with care. And so I feel like that's this moment. And I really don't want us to miss it by like ruminating on the problem. Exactly. Or in not coming together 
and like asking for all, we can have all of it, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like, well, don't argue for cash payments because we won't get paid leave, all of it. So let's talk about race for a moment, right? Because women of color have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic. 70% of all um, caretakers in low-income families are mothers. They're disproportionately women of color. How do we create a movement where they're at the center but at the same time, you capitalize on the white collar moms, right? Who are for the first time are like, oh, wow, structures are broken. Mm-hmm. Is there an opportunity to build a coalition like one you've never seen before? I do think that there's an opportunity. And I'm the person. I'm like, we can build the plane as we fly it. We can build the road as we walk it. And so I think we just start doing it and normalizing it as the thing. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to tell people like, we're going to build an inclusive movement here. You know, we just start doing it and bringing everybody to the table and starting out from a place where, you know, centering women and families and moms that, you know, that have been disproportionately impacted and starting there. Like, you know, we've been talking about, oh, you know, we want a national childcare system. But the pushback is like, oh, well, what about millionaire moms? What about these moms who make a lot of money? We don't want them tapping into the system. I said, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) I said, I don't care. I said, we don't charge, you know, rich people more to go to the Grand Canyon. We don't charge them more to get into a museum. I said, that's what makes it accessible. And that's what creates buy-in. You know, that's what the same, Mm. like, you can opt out of the system, but you have to build the system so that everybody is able to see themselves and, and feel like they can tap into it. Um, and our problem that, you know, historically is that's not what we've done. We've created like a social safety net system that's means tested, a childcare system that's means tested. And so people, mm. you know, middle class, upper middle class people don't feel invested. They feel like it's a giveaway. And so if we can create systems where people in need can tap into them or have the option, just like we do public education, we treat it like childcare, like a public good, then I think that is a way to, like you said, bring everyone to the table. So I just, again, I just really think about how we can be smart and do this work differently and do this work so that we can win. Like at the end of the day, I'm about winning on these issues. I'm about accelerating and strategy. And we don't need good descriptions of the problem. We need good strategies. Powerful, Dr. Mason. So after four years under Trump, we finally have an administration that's not hostile (laughs) to us. Um, And as a leading policy expert and an influential leader in the space, like what are your priorities over the next four years? Well, I'm like you, like, I don't think, I think we should ask for it all. Like, this is not a trade-off, a negotiation, like, you can't have basic income because now we want paid sick leave. So don't ask for this because you won't get that. Like, I think we should go in and be bold and say, this is like what we really need to make things right, to make things equitable. And then we can start negotiation. But like everything should be on the table in terms of what we believe that we need. Like, for example, what's sort of being negotiated now is like the, the $15 minimum wage mm-hmm. and like oh, you know, maybe we'll get it or maybe it's included or it's not. It's like, well, actually, that's not even enough. (laughs) Like, can we see in the pandemic, like, you know, that's not even a living wage. But to make $15 an hour, you also need paid sick leave. You also need job security. Like, it's horrible to think that you can work for a company for 20 years, you know, in the service industry, and they announce that they're closing in three weeks, you know, with no severance pay or anything. You know, and so like that sort of job security, people don't have. 
And so I'm really hoping that we can really go big. And um, and I do think that this... I can't wait to meet your puppy. Well, this guy. <laughs> he like never barks, but he's like... Oh, trust me. My Stan- my Stanley does the exact same thing. She's like, oh, you're on TV? You're trying to have a podcast? Great. Let me just come here and, and either show everybody my butt or like, you know what I mean? Bark real loud. Um, so like you, I think that, you know, this is a time to like go big. And, you know, the best thing about it is that like we do have a supportive or administration with really good people in there. But that also means that like we also should feel comfortable applying pressure because that's what's necessary in this moment. We can't sort of say, oh, we got good people in place. So let's do something else or let's focus over here. That's what I find as an outsider, right? A little interesting. Um, is that it seems as though we're probably not going to get what we want this time, but you're also not allowed to call anybody out. And that feels problematic. Because it is problematic. I mean, it's very, again, political because the next thing you know, you're not getting invited to stuff, you know? (laughs) So like, that's real. You know, the consequences are real. But I do think (laughs) there's a way to sort of put big ideas out there and, push them and engage and provoke conversation, you know, so that the things that we're talking about is they're unavoidable. Mm -hmm. Like you can't get around having the conversation. Like even with the Marshall plan, you can now not get around having this conversation or at least engaging the ideas. And so I, I think that we enter the public square and, you know, put the ideas out there and continue to do that. And I have to say that with this administration, I actually don't know where any of this stuff went. I don't know if it went to a black hole, but, you know, we were like all sort of putting together all these transition memos and plans and stuff like this. And I remember thinking that there were some things I didn't agree with and people were, you know, sharpening ideas. And I was like, this is what it's about. This sharpening, this pushing is what it's about. And what I'm hoping is that the administration is able to take that in and sees it as sharpening rather than threatening or taking apart. Yeah. Listen, I think the reality is, is whoever gets the populist moms wins in two years, mm-hmm. period. Like, I think that this anger and rage is so deep and so real that like people are paying attention in ways that they weren't before and want to be seen. But I think it is going to take bold change, not incremental change. And I think that like, we just haven't been moving on these issues for so long. We can't just blame Trump. You know what I mean? We have to ask ourselves why. Well, you know, frankly, we didn't move on a lot of these things before Trump. So in the last three decades, we've only closed the pay gap by like 20 cents. Mm. You know, we haven't had any real child care legislation since 1990. No social safety net reform since 96. So at this point, you know, I'm looking at all of us. That's right. And I see this even in, in my world in terms of like the women in tech space, where we know we got to call out these big tech companies. We know they're not doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. We know that they're full of rampant sexism and racism, but it's, you know, it's been so hard for us. And I think that like, that's part of where I feel like we're raised to be good girls and like, don't call attention and say, thank mm-hmm. you. If and when, we're getting screwed. So, you know, a lot of what we talk about on my show is like, how do you let go of that perfection? I'm sure as a woman of color, who's clearly not afraid to use your voice, you got to lean into your bravery a lot in DC. How do you do that? 
I think it's really hard. And just like what you said, because I was talking to someone yesterday or the other day, and I said, I know this sounds crazy. Tell me if you think this is crazy, but I really think it'll work, (laughs) you know? And because there's not a lot of validation for those bold ideas. In fact, sometimes I'm in meetings and I get told exactly why something won't work or why we need to stay here. And, you know, there's something very real, I think, in your space and probably mine as well about losing friends and allies and the politics of the work. And that, I think, resisting that or trying to think beyond that or outside of that is scary and does require a lot of bravery and risky. I think it's very risky. But I just continue to, in my own spaces, to have the conversation. And I actually said to myself, I said, I'm just going to stay in my own lane. Mm. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and block the noise out and block what some people are saying won't work out and try to find the people who say, I think it can work. Yes. But I, you know, it's funny. It's like, I think that like, I get it. Meaning like we've been conditioned this way and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's really hard, but necessary and I think because I've been in this space for so long where I'm always fighting that I'm f- mm-hmm. I, and asking for what I think we deserve, that I'm like very comfortable. Mm. Even if people are critical, I just don't read the comment section. <laughs> I want to ask you though about Unstoppable Together. Tell me about that. I'm really excited about this campaign. It's with Global Beauty Brand Number 7 and, you know, a lot of women leaders from across the country. And basically what we've been talking about here, uh, very solution oriented um, and really aimed at getting women back to work and thinking about like, what's the best way to do that? And, you know, it's jobs. It's thinking innovatively about what women need, what moms need. There's going to be the Unstoppable Together Job Summit, and it's going to be like coaching sessions, workshops, and panels from people like Ariana Huffington, Maria Shriver, Tamron Hall, and I'll be there speaking. I just think it's a space to all come together and do like what we just said, like where we start to say, like, it's not just me, like this problem is larger and bigger. And together, collectively, we need to figure this out. And so like, I think in this moment, the corporate mom feels a connection to the mom who is struggling working a you know minimum wage job. These stories are the same, but you know what? Before this, we didn't know that. And so um, I think the Unstoppable Together Job Summit and the campaign is really aimed at sharing those stories, bringing women together and thinking collectively about what next. I love it. How can listeners follow you and support your work? Um, Well, you can visit IWPR at IWPR.com. You can follow me on any social media at CNicoleMason.com. Amazing. That was Dr. C. Nicole Mason, President and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, talking about the impact of the pandemic on women's jobs and the need for innovative solutions to turn this crisis around. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, I would be so appreciative if you told a friend about Brave Not Perfect or left a nice short review on Apple Podcasts. Take care of yourself, and I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone co-produced this episode. And of course, we couldn't make Brave Not Perfect without unwavering support from Deborah Singer and Rashma Sajani, 